Good morning, church. Uh, if I have not had a chance to meet you, my name is Joey Kraft, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege and responsibility to preach God's Word. Before I do that, a few things to draw your attention to. First, it is Family Worship Sunday, and so children, I just want you to know that we are delighted that you get to stay in here with us. Uh, we are so thankful that you get to hear the Word. Uh, there are things you can color on and follow along up here. Uh, youth, as you always know, there are youth sermon notes on the back of the bulletin. Also tonight at 5 p.m., the youth will gather for a Bible study on Romans 1, 18 through 32. And this Friday, the youth will be bowling. So parents, sign your kids up for that. Uh, in a minute, Catherine's going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You can find that on page 986. But before she does that, she's going to tell you something else you should do. So as Joey says, my name is Catherine Feliciano. I lead our women's ministry here at Restoration and I want to invite all the ladies to a three-week book study on this book, What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord by Michael Reeves. It's more of a mini book, as you can see. It's short but super compelling. Reeves will help us think through what does the Bible say about fear and how do we understand and develop a right fear of God. So he says that a proper understanding of the fear of the Lord is a taste of heaven and the antidote to anxiety. So this is the next thing we're doing in, uh, for our theme of Anchored for this year, Anchored to Jesus in the midst of uh, stress and anxieties. So uh, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of being anchored. So that's why we are reading this book study. So the next three Sundays, the 15th, 22nd, and 29th at 9 a.m. downstairs in the Fellowship Hall, um, if you have any questions, you can come find me after or ask any female member. They should have the information for you. So let's turn our attention to the reading of today's sermon text. I'll be reading 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12 on page 986 of your pew Bible. Follow along there or on the screens behind me. Hear the word of God. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Father, we come to you now in the name of Christ, and we plead that the word would go forth, God, and we ask that you would change us for the glory of Jesus. We pray for our brother Nathan as he preaches at our sister church in Florida this morning. We pray for the gospel that goes out down the street at 4th Presbyterian and across the city at Mercy of Christ Fellowship. We're so thankful, God, that we stand in a legacy of faith. And we look forward to our future home when we'll see our Lord face to face. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. What does it mean to be a real Christian? What are the characteristics of an authentic pastor? I wonder if you've ever asked those questions. Uh, For my non-Christian friend, maybe that's why you came this morning. Uh, You're looking for a description of authentic Christianity. You're wondering about spiritual authority and the role of pastors. And I can understand why. In this current cultural moment, Christianity can be confusing. And unfortunately, the headlines, especially over the past decade or so, are littered with so-called pastors acting in abusive and immoral ways. And so we're left to ask, how do we discern authentic Christianity? What does a godly pastor look like? Well, this morning, these are the questions we'll consider as we Continue our sermon series in 1 Thessalonians. This is a letter Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. It's a church that he and his friends started. As soon as they started the church, they're beat up and they're thrown out of town. And now in Paul's absence, he has some critics. They're trying to discredit him and his message. And this letter is inspired by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to encourage the church to press on. Paul's aim is to silence his critics and to spur on the church. And this letter is God's word to us, to give us hope that we might press on to Christ, that we might press in to each other, and we might press on toward heaven. In chapter 1, Paul reminds the Thessalonians, listen, you really did believe the gospel. You really did turn from your idolatry and trust in Christ. You really are being changed. And then in chapter 2, Paul defends and describes his ministry. That he has showed up with a genuine message, with genuine motives. And Paul says, listen, my message is true. My motives are pure. My methods are honest. And to be clear, Paul's not boasting in himself. As you read chapter 2, you'll notice at least 15 times he references God. His boldness is in God. He's approved by God. His aim is to please God. That's where his confidence lies. Not in himself, but in his God. And as Paul defends and describes his gospel ministry, he's telling us what authentic Christian leadership looks like. So I have a kind of an odd job this morning because I'm preaching my own job description to you. We get to see from this passage, what does an authentic pastor look like? I'm giving you a Holy Spirit inspired job description. So you can evaluate us pastors. You should know we are not perfect. But you should be asking, do the men who serve as pastors of this church aim for a ministry like this? Do they seem to have character, concerns, and a care 
to what Paul describes. But this passage isn't just about you evaluating us. It's also about imitating your pastors so far as they imitate Christ. It's the very thing Paul says back in chapter 1, verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And so chapter 2 helps us evaluate authentic Christianity, the pastors and the people. And this morning, we're, we're going to confine our attentions to verses 9 through 12. And from these verses, I want to unfold four aims of the authentic Christian. Here they are. The authentic Christian desires to know others and be known by them. The authentic Christian labors to give, not just to get. The authentic Christian declares and displays the gospel. And the authentic Christian comforts and charges for the glory of of Christ. For my non-Christian friend, as we look at each one of these, I urge you to consider that the Christians that you know and maybe the pastors you've interacted with, but even more, I want you to consider Christ. We hope in some way that our lives show his beauty, but at the end of the day, we don't want you to look to us. We want you to look to Jesus. Any goodness or brightness in our life is like a flickering match compared to the bright noonday sun. He is that much brighter and better. And so as we walk through this passage, I'll help you, but I want you to gaze at Jesus. So let's jump in. The authentic Christian desires to know and be known. Look again at the beginning of verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. For you remember, so Paul calls upon his relationship with the Thessalonians right from the bat of knowing them and being known by them. And this isn't the first time he does this. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Chapter 2, verse 1, for you yourselves know. Chapter 2, verse 2. We had already suffered in Philippi and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. Chapter 2, verse 5. We never came with words of flattery, as you know. Chapter 2, verse 10. You are our witnesses. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. For you know. Paul repeatedly recounts his relationship with the church. So kids, as you, as you read the Bible, you should when, when things are repeated, you should pay attention. It's like when you scream to get mom and dad's attention. That's what, they, that's what repetition is doing in the Bible. And for all of us else, maybe we could think of these repetitions as like that red dot on your phone. It's demanding, pay attention to me. Pay attention. And Paul says, listen, you know, remember, I had your best interest at heart. And here's part of what it means to be a pastor, to know and be known by the church. Pastors are not performers. They don't just sit in a green room, come out on a stage and deliver a well-crafted speech. Pastors are not entrepreneur CEOs sitting in an ivory tower coming up with cutting-edge strategies. Pastors are servant leaders. They roll up their sleeves. They share their heart. They shed tears. Pastors are shepherds. They don't sit in a green room. They lead their flock out to green pastures. They know their flock by name. Their focus is names, not numbers. 
They feed the flock. They care for wounded sheep. They pursue the wandering sheep. They seek the lost. And because of this, good shepherds smell like sheep. When others run away, good pastors run in. Godly pastors bear crosses. They do not wear crowns. And all of this is modeled after the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. He didn't come to be served, but to serve in our mess, in our sin, in our struggles. He does not walk away. He runs to us. He lays his life down for the sheep and he takes it back up again that we might have true life and true hope. Jesus knows us and he makes himself known to us that we might know him. Beloved, this is the aim of your pastors. We are not Jesus. But we do want to be the under shepherds of the great shepherd. Me and Nathan, Chris Ambridge, Chris Holt, Nick, Ray. Again, we're not perfect. You hang, you'll know that if you hang out with us. But our desire is to, to know you and to be known by you. And of course, not every pastor can be best friends with every member. But we do want to be open, welcoming, inviting to, to be known beyond the surface. And I think, by God's grace, this is the aroma of our church. And so what I, this might be risky, but I think it's worth doing. So Nathan, Joey, Chris Ambridge, Chris Holt, Ray, Nick, those are your six pastors. So if you have been in the home of one of these pastors, shared a meal with them or their family, or just had like a personal coffee with them, just raise your hand. Look around, church. Every hand that is up is a sign of God's grace to his church. It's God's grace that we love you. We want to be known by you. Because when, not if, when struggle, criticism, opposition, doubt, when that comes, and it will come, we too want to be able to say, for you remember, we love you. We have your best interests at heart. And remember, this isn't just for the leaders, it's for every Christian, for every member of this church, knowing and being known by each other. Is that messy and complex? Absolutely. Will you be let down? Probably. Might you get hurt? Yep. As they say, sheep do bite. But it's worth it. We need to be able to say to others inside the life of this church, other covenant members, for you remember, you know, I was there with you. And this, this knowing and being known is one of the ways that we intimately know the great shepherd, Jesus. We, when we trust in Jesus, when we repent of our sin and run to him, we don't have to hide behind plastic smiles. We don't have to excuse our sin. We don't have to minimize our failures. We don't have to self-righteously compete and compare. We don't have to be paralyzed by fear of being hurt. Because we know that in Christ, every sin is paid. And so we freely confess and ask for forgiveness. We know that in Christ, we are free from being defined by performance. So we freely admit our weaknesses and our failures. Knowing that we're accepted and adopted by God. So it doesn't matter what others think. Jesus was crushed on the cross. He was thrust into the darkness of death. But on the third day, Jesus got up and walked out. And because of that, 
Darkness fled. And because darkness fled, we can always walk in the light. We can be known by each other. We don't have to fear it. We don't have to hide in shame or isolate. Jesus loves us enough and likes it enough to, to redeem us, to wash us clean. And so we can be real with each other. And this builds a culture, a church of knowing and being known. In Christ, we don't have to hide. In Christ, we belong to, together. And we know Jesus better together. Our deepest satisfaction does not come from achieving personal autonomy, but through knowing God and knowing and being known by each other. And this is what Christ, this is what a local gospel church gives. So beloved church family, I just want to commend you that I think you do this well. In community groups, disciple relationships, friendships, opening your home and your dinner table, you seek to know Jesus and you seek to know others and be known by them. And so may God give us the grace to make this mark us all the more. So the authentic Christian knows and is known by others and the authentic Christian labors to give, not just get. Look again at verse 9. For you remember, brothers, brothers and sisters, Our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that he, Silas, and Timothy didn't come with greedy motives. If you remember back up in verse 6, Paul says, listen, I could have made demands as apostle. I could have thrown around my authority. I could have insisted on financial support. In fact, in other letters, you can go read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Paul says churches should labor to fully support their pastors. But in this instance, Paul worked night and day. He was a tent maker. So he would not be a burden to this newly formed church. And Paul raised financial support from other churches. Go read Philippians chapter 4 and he thanks them the church in Philippi sending him support while he was in Thessalonica. And so Paul worked a job. Paul raised funds. And he did it all so he could bless by giving, not be a burden by getting. His ultimate security was not in cash, but it was in Christ. And his worth and his identity wasn't tied to his work. He was in Jesus, so he was free to give. Give it all for the glory of Christ. And by the power of the Spirit, Paul sought to live like Jesus. Remember Christ. He did not come to get, but to give. Jesus came to bless, not burden. Jesus did not demand to be treated according to his authority, nor did he insist on financial gain. Scripture tells us he became poor. And Jesus labored not just night and day for the good of others, but toiled in life and death for their salvation. Compelled by the lavish generosity of his Savior, Paul sought to lavishly be generous with his church. He was confident in Christ and passionate about the gospel, and so he did all he could to give to others that they might treasure Jesus. And this is the mark of an authentic Christian leader. Again, while Nathan and I are no Apostle Paul, this is what we did when we moved to D.C. 14 years ago. We both got jobs at a Starbucks, neither of which are still open. I don't know what that says about us, but both of them did close. But we both got jobs at Starbucks. We were baristas. Paul made tents. We made lattes. 
We also worked another part-time job as research assistants for a company. And we raised money from all kinds of churches and individuals. We scrapped and we scraped to make ends meet. And early on, it wasn't just us. Two other unmarried women, Brandy and Michelle, raised money, got part-time jobs, and moved here into the city to help us. Our motto back, back then was, we'll, we'll pay you as much as you can raise. In the early days of our church, we wanted to do all we could do to make sure we were not a burden, but to bless, to give. And by God's grace, here we are today. And by God's grace, we church, you are so generous that now you fully support us and several others that work for our church. And I must also remind you of Pastor Eldon Moats, a man who served as the pastor of Temple Baptist, the church that gave us this building. For 20 plus years, this man worked a full-time job so he could pastor this congregation to make sure this, this, these assets, this roof over our head, these lights shining, he did that because he wanted to make sure he didn't burden the church so much they couldn't afford to keep going. It's what he did. And here's why I bring this up. Because I want you to know, if you've benefited at all from the ministry of this church, you should praise the Lord for the dozens of churches and saints that gave to make it happen. We stand in a long line of precious saints and faithful churches. And we should give God praise for this. And I also want to note, this is essentially what our lay elders do, beloved. They work full-time jobs to provide for their families and then give of their time to pastor this church. Nick and Chris, Ambridge, Chris Holt and Ray. I said they, they work a full-time job and then spend their leftover time caring for their family and caring for this church. So I just want you to give God, give God praise for our elders, beloved. They're a gift from the Lord. And now we get to do the same thing. So we get to, to give, to start and support churches and spread the gospel. So we help support Alejandro at IBSG. We help support Jeremy McLean at Mercy of Christ Fellowship in Northeast D.C. We give to the International Mission Board so our gospel partners in Central Asia are fully funded as they seek to plant a church. We give to the Treasuring Christ Together Network and partner to start churches nationally and globally. We give to support six campus outreach staffers so they can focus on sharing the gospel full time. We've given to Micah some so he can support for sharing the gospel full time at Crew. Our church is not perfect, but I praise God for your generosity. The only way we can do these things is because you are generous with us. You give to the church that we might give to others. And like Paul, we want to prioritize with what we've been entrusted to start and strengthen churches and share the gospel. This is what authentic Christian leaders do. This is what authentic gospel churches do. This is what authentic Christians do. They labor to give. And not just get. Do you see Paul's mindset here? In working and toiling, his aim simply isn't personal comfort, but the church's needs. He gives generously that the gospel might advance. And so is this one of the ways that you see your work and your tool, toil? You may not be a pastor, 
You may never be a church planter or on a church planting team. I hope many of you are. But most of you have or likely will have some type of job that compensates you financially for your work. And all of us have time and gifts that we can give. And 1 Thessalonians 2 is asking us, how will you steward these resources given to you by God? Too often our job title is the measure of our worth. And so we choose careers or take promotions that actually compromise our ability to give. Too often we see our vocation simply as a means to more vacation. We toil so we can travel to get for ourselves. Or sometimes our work and toil is literally night and day. And so we actually become a burden on our family or we become a burden on our church because we have nothing else to give. And 1 Thessalonians 2 is asking us, will you labor in such a way to give your time, your money, give yourself, not just to get for yourself? And while I challenge you, I also want to commend you. Just this past week, I had, I had conversations with two members about trying to steward their job and their money so as to be more available to serve the church. To set their life up so they go make disciples across the globe. And as I mentioned, our church is generous because you are generous. And it's not just money. So many of you give time. You serve the church sacrificially. You bless, not burden. And so I just want to praise God for you, beloved. And say, let it mark us all the more. So the authentic Christian seeks to know and be known. The authentic Christian labors to give, not just get. And third, the authentic Christian declares and displays the gospel. Look again at verse 9 and 10. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul sees no separation between the sacred and the secular. Paul worked a job, and he proclaimed Jesus. Paul speaks the gospel with his lips, and he shows it with his life. And both are necessary. Declaring and displaying the gospel. So in chapter 1, Paul reminds the Thessalonians, listen, the gospel came to you in words. The passage next week is going to talk about how the word of God came to them. And then earlier in chapter 2, Paul mentions he declared the gospel of God. And we shared with you the gospel of God. And now again, verse 9, he proclaims the gospel of God. Kids, we have repetition. What should we do? We should scream. Yeah, shouldn't we, Jane? We should, yes, scream. Pay attention. Pay attention. Paul's trying to tell us something. A pesky red dot on your phone. Pay attention. So let's pay attention. What is Paul doing? Why, why this repetition? First, realize that sharing or declaring the gospel requires words. There's a saying of old. That says, preach the gospel and at all times, if necessary, preach the gospel at all times. And if necessary, use words. I appreciate the sentiment of that saying, but I humbly say it makes no sense. 
It's the equivalent of saying, let's go swimming and if necessary, use water. It's the equivalent of saying, let's draw a square and if necessary, use lines. Why? The gospel is news. It requires words. They can be written. They can be spoken. They can be signed. But it requires words. We cannot share the gospel if we do not use words. So youth, I would encourage you, as you gather tonight, make sure your teachers share the gospel with words from Romans 1, chapter, chapter 1, 18 through 32. Make sure they use words to share the gospel. Kids, listen up. Kids, when you go home today, ask your parents to explain the gospel to you with words. Say, Mommy, Daddy, will you use some words and... Explain the gospel to me. Can you tell me why Jesus died on the cross and how I should respond? Parents, I'll give you a couple of answers. One run on sentence and then five words. So here you go. If you don't know, I don't know. Here you go. Here's your answer. What is the gospel? The good news that the holy God who made us sent his son Jesus to live a holy life, die for our sin and rise again. So that by repenting and believing, we could be forgiven and adopted into God's family. Or, that was too much, five words. God, us, Jesus, response, God. God. God is holy, righteous, and good. He made us to know him and enjoy him. Us. But we chose to disobey. Instead of loving God, we love other things, ourselves more than we love God. And this is called sin. Sin is not just doing bad things. It's not doing every good thing and loving good things more than we love God. And sin separates us from God. Sin demands punishment. God, us, Jesus. Jesus is truly human and truly God. God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life we did not live. He died the death we should have died, paying the price for our sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead, showing that his payment for sin is sufficient. God, us, Jesus, response. Now we have another choice to make. Will we choose to turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation and be reconciled back to God? If we don't, when we die, we'll be forever separated from God. That's called hell. That's the bad news. The good news is we trust in Jesus. We get God. God is the gospel. God, us, Jesus' response, God. God is the good news of the gospel. We get to enjoy a relationship with God when we trust in Christ alone because he is God who came to bring us back into fellowship. This is the core of the gospel that Paul proclaimed. Christ crucified and resurrected. That salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by human works, not by religious deeds, but by God's mercy. Friend, if you're not trusting in Christ, if you're looking for hope, if you're trying to earn your way back to God, may I invite you to trust this person, this gospel, this Jesus. If you want to know more about that, ask the person who brought you this morning, or just come talk to me. I'll be standing right here up front, 
And I'd love to talk to you or get connected to a member of our church that could help you better understand this good news. So Paul repeatedly uses words to declare, to proclaim the gospel. And notice this. Three times Paul says it is the gospel of God. The message is God's. It's not ours. We are not at liberty to change it or edit it. The gospel boldly announces Christ. It does not bend to accommodate the culture. You need to know that, beloved. It announces Christ. We are news heralds. We are not book editors. We don't get to subtract or add to the gospel. It's God's message. We are little errand boys and errand girls for Jesus. The mailman does not get to decide the mail that he delivers. And we are entrusted with the gospel, the precious treasure, carefully guarded, eagerly passed on. And so authentic pastors and authentic Christians declare the gospel. And we must display the gospel. This is what Paul's getting at in verse 10. He's telling telling us and telling the church the content of the gospel shapes the conduct of the Christian. And Paul is saying, listen, my conduct is in step with the gospel. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were so impacted by Jesus that they're able to stand before the Thessalonian church and say, listen, we are holy, righteous, righteous, and blameless in how we've acted towards you. To be clear, Paul is not saying he's sinless. Go read 1 Timothy. He's like, listen, I'm the greatest sinner that I know. He's simply saying their lives are above reproach. There's no discernible pattern of besetting sin. They're not hiding anything. Remember, he says, God is witness. Uh, Their work for the church, their interactions inside and outside the church are to be marked by humility and honesty and integrity, upright, so they don't bring shame on the church or on Jesus. That's how they're interacting with others. And authentic Christian leaders, pastors of churches, are to be men of Christ-like character, committed to the glory of Christ, serving for the good of their family and their church family. Again, beloved, this is not perfect, but it is worthy of imitation. Both when they get it right, and pastors should be the chief examples of repenting quickly and humbly when we get it wrong. We should be able to say, follow Jesus as I follow Jesus, and repent as I repent. We should be able to say, follow me as I'll follow Jesus, and I'll open my life up to you as I do. So, brothers of this church, young youth group boys, I'm charging you to be this type of man. I'm charging you to live in such a way that you can be an elder of this church or another gospel church. Here's the reality. It's easy to sin and use others for yourself. It's easy to click on that picture and peruse that website. It's easy to passively disengage from your wife while you actively consume social media. It's easy to hit snooze and skip prayer. It's easy to work late and skip community group again. It's easy to be angry, critical, and prideful. It's easy to spend time and money flippantly, thoughtlessly taking life as it comes, but never taking responsibility for your holiness. 
That's easy. Christ did not call you to easy, brothers. He called you to himself. The suffering servant. The one who is truly righteous, blameless, and holy. And we must remember, he is not calling us to walk a path he did not walk. And he's not calling us to do it alone. In our own effort, he gave us the church. And more importantly, he puts his spirit inside of us so that we have the power to pursue Jesus. Men, pursue holiness. Pursue righteousness. Pursue blamelessness. Dear sisters, I've not forgot about you. I'm calling you to this type of life also. A life that adorns the gospel with Christ-like character. Your life should be like the prongs on a ring. Your character that upholds the surpassing beauty of Jesus. Our church needs strong, ferociously godly women displaying the worth and the wonder of Christ with their holy conduct. Our daughters, my daughters, need to see what godly womanhood looks like. Beloved sisters, you are a gift to our church. And I praise God for you. We need you. And I'm so thankful the Lord has given so many of you to our church family. This is what authentic Christians do. We declare the gospel with our lips and we adorn it with our lives. Our conduct alone won't win anyone to Christ. But it could make them not listen. If you talk about the grace of Jesus and then you're a jerk, God can work in despite of you. But let's not presume upon that. Even when you're hated or disliked, be humble. The church should be a peculiar people. We announce a message that many won't like, and yet our actions should testify our character that we're forgiven when wrong. We repent when we are wrong ourselves. We're eager to compliment. We're slow to complain and condemn. We're generous with our time and money. We're pure in relationships. We're honest in speech, even with our friends and our family that are not Christian members. Do you know God's common grace is still active in their life, and you can eagerly find that out and point it out to them and praise God for it? Because all this testifies to the beauty and the happiness and the contentment and the hope of being satisfied in Christ alone. It's what we do. Authentic Christians know and are known. They labor to give, not just get. They declare the gospel and display the gospel. And finally, authentic Christians comfort and challenge for the glory of Christ. Look at verses 11 through 12. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So in verse 8, Paul uses the image of a nursing mother to communicate his affection, his pastoral heart. Now he uses the image of a father. 
So throughout this passage, we have, we have mother, we have father, we have children, we have brothers, we have sisters. The church is just a big family. It's what we are. We're a me- messy, big family saved by the grace of Christ. And Paul uses mother and father, and he's, he's multifaceted. He's saying, listen, we're, we're so multifaceted and balanced in our care for you. You can't put us in a box. We're nuanced, but we're not compromised. And so here we have the idea of this sweet mixture of authority and affection. As a father with his children, he does three things. Exhort, encourage, and charge. Now those first two words, exhort and encourage, are in the realm of encouraging, inviting, and comforting. In fact, some of your translations might say encouraging and comforting, or encouraging, um, yeah, encouraged and comfort. These are the same words used elsewhere to talk about comforting the weary. Or to console the worry and the weeping. These words are used in John 11 when the sisters are crying that their brother died. And so the tone here is one of tenderness and empathy. Fathers, pay attention. This should be in our bag of tricks. And yes, I am preaching to the choir. Tenderness, empathy. Fathers, like a good dad. Use your authority, not just to list demands, but listen to desires. Not just to fix problems, but comfort in trouble. What does Paul say? Paul uses another word too, charge. The tone here is one of urgency, of command, of firmness. And so Paul has a ministry of tears and truth, grace and grit. He is tough and he is tender. And so it is, again, with Christian leaders. There is nuance, but not compromise. There is invitation and correction. There is leading by example, showing empathy, and speaking firmly. There are spines of steel and hearts of compassion. And again, beloved, we are not perfect, but know this is the aim of your pastors. Uh, With Christ-like compassion and Jesus-exalting conviction, we want to come to you. Uh, The error is going too far in one way. As one pastor says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. End quote. We need a sweet mixture of love and truth. And Jesus pictures this for us. He wasn't merely sentimental, only affirming. And he wasn't harsh, constantly berating. Jesus wasn't mean, and he wasn't mushy. He spoke with authority and affection. Think about it. To one woman, he said, listen, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And deny yourself, pick up your cross, And follow me. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. I have come to make your joy complete. Paul is taking his cue from his Savior. And so should we. Beloved, at times our pastors are going to come alongside you with words of comfort. By the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, we're going to try to apply the balm of the gospel to wounded souls, hurting hearts, that Jesus might bring hope and healing. 
And at times, we must say hard things to you. Remember, beloved, when we call you to repentance, when we correct you, when we point out the dangerous errors of your ways, our aim is not to be harsh. We are calling you to honor Christ. We are not perfect. At times, our tone might be off. I'm sure there are times, I've called some of you after we've had appointments and I've said, listen, I don't apologize for what I was trying to say, but I do apologize for how I said it. Sometimes we could pick better words. We're flawed humans, but our heart is this. It's this. To comfort and to charge for the glory of Jesus. And this is the way all of us should be speaking to each other. Including the pastors. We're not just, we're not just giving correction. We also need to be corrected at times. Some of you have talked to me and corrected me and critiqued me. And I'm thankful for that. And we all certainly need comfort, don't we? We should be speaking words of comfort to one another. Like I said, our church is a church family. All the members caring, encouraging, comforting, challenging. And again, I praise God for you, beloved. So many of you do this well. You're like surgeons of the soul, using your words as a scalpel to bring hope, revealing sin, applying the gospel. So let's press on all the more. So this week, ask those in your community group, ask those you disciple, ask your spouse, ask your roommate, do I err too far in one direction? Is the consistent pattern of my speech, is it only comforting or is it mainly charging, correcting? We have a sweet mixture of both like Christ. But it's important as to why Paul is offering these words. Look at verse 12. What's his aim? so that they walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul is comforting and correcting so that they'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's Paul's focus. He wants the Thessalonians to keep living a life that shows the worth of God, the power of the gospel, the glory of Jesus. Paul is not saying live in such a way so that you earn your salvation. It's important that chapter 2 comes after chapter 1. Chapter 1, we already know they're converted. God chose them before the foundation of the world to be holy and righteous and blameless. And now Paul is saying, listen, you are, now be. Technically, justification, salvation, how do you work that out? It's called sanctification, walking in the glory of Christ. And so that's what Paul is getting at here. That he wants them to follow Jesus, showing the worth of Jesus even when it's not popular and they're being persecuted. And I think it's important to note that word walk. It's not a sprint. We don't like this. But it's a slow, steady pace in the same direction. The Christian life is one of being radically mundane. You want to be radical? Get up and commune with God in prayer and read your Bible every day. And go intentionally disciple others. There are big moments. There's times of significant growth. But here we we can we fool ourselves if we thinking that following Jesus is always going to be a thrilling new pump up religious experience with heightened feel good emotions. It's not that way, beloved. Talk to some saints who've been following Jesus for decades. 
And they'll say, listen, you want to know the key to following Jesus? Long obedience in the same direction. Beholding the glory of Christ as he changes you from one degree of glory to another. That's the key. But why? Because God calls us into his kingdom and his glory. This is our motivation. This is our reward. Christians are kingdom citizens. We know our king is Jesus. And Jesus frees us to live for him, not for the world. King Jesus delivered us from the penalty of sin. In the resurrection, he overcame the power of sin. And one glorious day, he will return to restore the world. And we will be forever free from the presence of sin. We know this world is temporary. There's a lot of beauty in it. And there's a lot of brokenness. We're simply passing through. We're sojourning together. We're walking. And soon enough, beloved, we'll be home. We will be a home, heaven on earth as it was always meant to be. This is the hope that Paul is holding out for them. Over and over again in 1 Thessalonians, he holds out the return of Christ. Future glory. And when that day comes, we'll enjoy true glory, unhindered by sin, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. We will behold the face of the Lord Jesus being completely changed into his likeness. That's how glorious he is. When you see him, you are actually changed into his likeness, beloved. That's our hope. That's why we walk. Our motivation is not pull your bootstraps up and get going. There is grit, but it's only as we behold the face of Jesus knowing his glorious kingdom is just ahead. God calls you. Active present tense. He's calling you right now to himself. Notice his own kingdom. It's personal. He wants you to be with him. This is what authentic Christianity looks like. Everyday faithfulness fueled by past grace and future glory. Lives that speak and show the wonder and the weight of the gospel. Beloved church family, I praise the Lord for the many ways this marks us. And by God's grace, let's press on all the more. Let's press on all the more. That's a term Paul uses throughout his letter. All the more. Let's press on. And friend, I hope you see the beauty of Jesus. We invite you to join us as we delight in him. Declaring and displaying the gospel until we meet him face to face. Let's pray. God, we come and we marvel at your grace for it saves and it sanctifies and it satisfies. Would you, by your grace, allow us to be a place that strive to live out a beautiful picture of the glorious Christ, that we would boldly and humbly use words to describe Jesus. And that you might grant those that don't have faith, faith, they might turn and trust in Christ and join with us as we walk, as we sojourn toward heaven. God, keep us until we see you, until we fully enter into your kingdom and your glory. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.